Welcome to the Alternative Assets Podcast with Stefan and Wyatt. This is not another podcast about stocks or venture capital. This is about the wide world of investment opportunities that aren't discussed as much. Our website and newsletter is at alternativeassets.club, where you can find a transcript of this episode and many more unique investment ideas worth exploring. Now, let's dive in. All right. Hello and welcome, everyone. So here at Alternative Assets, we talk a lot about different alternative asset classes, but it's rare that we talk to someone who has created an entirely new asset class from scratch. And our guest today, Kenny Rose, has done exactly that. Kenny is the founder and CEO of FranShares. It's a company that lets everyday investors buy fractional shares of franchise businesses. And with FranShares, Kenny has essentially created a new investable asset class, a new opportunity, really an entirely new market. I'm super excited to speak with him about all of this today. So welcome, Kenny. Hey, thank you so much for having me on. I'm really excited to chat with you. All right. So let's get started. But before we talk about FranShares, before we, we talk about any of that, I have a question that's that's far more important. And <laughs> okay. uh, you may know where I'm going with this, but the question is, were you, you were on The Price is Right. Is that correct? Oh, you do your research. Yes, I was. <laughs> <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about that? That's super cool. Oh, yeah. It was honestly just a lifelong dream come true and then turned into a horrible nightmare at the same time. <laughs> so I uh, went there with a group of guys from college. I went to San Diego State, so it's a quick drive up to L.A. You know, we, were, we sit in the audience. They interview everyone before you go up there. And I'd actually tried out there multiple times before. I went with another student organization group, and uh, the girl next to me was a flamingo dancer. So I kind of assumed she'd get picked, and I was right there. So went there with my own friends. Got to go up, super excited, but I didn't get to go until like one of the last people to get called up. <laughs> and I had to bid first, managed to get it because everyone else went over, and then totally lost my game. <laughs> I won an $800 desk and then lost the game. And then I uh, go to spin the wheel. I have to spin first, and I spin a 45, which <laughs> is just... Oh, man. So I spin again and hit another 45 get to the showcase showdown. I'm flabbergasted. It's a dream come true. I'm going to the showcase showdown. Unreal. And then as I uh, get up there, you know, I start chatting with the other contestant like while we're in between uh, cuts and stuff. And I said, oh, so are you the trip guy or the card guy? He said, <laughs> I just drove here from New York in my old car and it is completely destroyed. I need a car. And I'm like, well, uh, I guess that was my dream then. So then the, the first uh, one comes up and it's like, a ski trip to uh, Canada with like fur coats and skis and snowboards and uh, snowmobiles, just a coup de grace of things I don't know how to price. So I throw my bid in and then the other guy gets his thing. It's like brand new TV, a convertible sports car, all this great stuff. And then uh, he's like going to bid and all of his friends are telling him 30, 30. He most like, I'm go a little under. He did like 29.5 and uh -huh. it was... 29.9 so if he listened to his friends he would have gone over oh yeah it's, and uh i was like oh my god that was just a f extra knife in the wound <laughs> oh man how'd you do on yours you do all right oh no it wasn't pretty that <laughs> was probably like seven grand off oh that's amazing though what a great story though so all right so no showcase showdown winner but you had a great time and, and you, you you still win stuff even if you don't win the showcase showdown right i mean you, you walked home with something right I think they give everyone something if you like lose everything, but I won the initial bid for a, it was an $800 desk, but 
my rule of thumb for game shows is always take the cash. It's a sucker's bet to take anything they give you. <laughs> cool. Well, you got a great story. That's that's what matters, man. That's super there cool. There we go. Life memories. It's hard to watch the prices right now, though. All right. Now let's talk franchise. So I want to know, you know, what spurred you to start franchise? The first time I heard of franchise, I had two thoughts. Number one, well, this is super cool. This is amazing. And number two, how has this actually not been done before? And you know, I looked into it and I'm like, wow, it hasn't. And I'm like, you know, this guy, Kenny, he's on to something like uh, really look forward to chatting with him. Tell us about your story because you, you have franchising in your background, in your history. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. Well, actually, originally I was in finance. I was an advisor at Merrill Lynch. And this is back when uh, Greece's economy started spinning out of control. And even though it doesn't really affect our economy, the headlines of it still affect your portfolio. So my introduction to the finance world was, hey, you know what? Tweets and headlines can just destroy your net worth anyway. And so I was like, between that and robo-advisors, I'm going to see what else is out there. And I got introduced to the world of franchising through a friend and was basically told or introduced to a couple of franchise brokers. Now, most people have never heard of a franchise broker, but it's basically like being a realtor for the world of franchising. So I'd uh, help executives who were trying to get out of the corporate world, want a little predictability, but start their own business. Or sometimes they just wanted a great investment on the side. So I started off doing business development for them and eventually took over the uh, LA area for them. And then, you know, eventually decided, hey, I know this industry very well. It's time to go start my own. And so I uh, created my first company. It's a, a brokerage called Semfia. And Semfia really specialized in what are called semi-absentee franchises. So you think about a company like Supercuts. When you walk in, the owner's never there. They have a manager and the owner probably has a full-time job and they just manage a manager. So I specialized in that and big emphasis on educational content because when most people hear franchising, they go straight to McDonald's, Subway. Arby's, right, yeah. And honestly, I tend to avoid fast food because it's the highest startup costs, the thinnest mm. margins, and the most competition. And when you're like, oh, I should go start up a safe business, that's none of the things you want to hear for it. <laughs> yeah, because people absolutely just think of, you know, Chick-fil-A has some success stories around franchising and McDonald's is the most famous. But it sounds like just from a, an economic standpoint, it's actually probably one of the, the, the worst types of businesses you can own or at least franchise. Well, I mean, it does very well for the top tier food franchises. Like, you know, having the brand name recognition, like that's what a lot of people equate franchising to is just that part. But a lot of it's also just business systems in place and that go to market strategy. You know, franchising is a good way of skipping the first five or 10 years of figuring out business ownership. And so they franchise everything. You know, the guy who introduced me to franchising was the CEO of a company that coaches CEOs but never told me it was a franchise until that conversation. And I, that was my instant like, whoa, I apparently didn't know all this, but everything from commercial cleaning, uh, window washing, they have custom tailored suit franchises, they have trash franchises. I mean, pretty much any business can be and has been franchised. That's something that a lot of people, I, I would assume a lot of people don't know. I didn't realize just how big franchising is until kind of like researching before this, um, this podcast. And, uh, there's so many service businesses that are franchised. You wouldn't even think about it. You think, you know, yeah, it's mostly food and and um, and that sort of thing. But yeah, it sounds like there's a lot of just kind of quote unquote boring businesses, you know, uh, HVAC or cleaning or dry cleaning or laundromats and stuff like that. Is that fair to say? Oh, yeah, a ton of them. I, I call them the unsexy businesses. And whenever I was in the brokerage side, I'd always ask them, does it have to be a sexy business? 
And they usually say, oh, no, no, no. I'm like, I'll test you on that. Like, they have franchises for everything. I can make you uncomfortable with, with the different types of franchises out there. I mean, Adam and Eve is a franchise. You ever talk to the client about, hey, you want to buy a sex shop? That's a new <laughs> one. <laughs> wow. Yeah, so putting all this educational content out there was just important to me because like, they know about franchising. They don't know much about it. And so uh, because I was pushing that out, I became the number one writer worldwide on Quora for franchising. Managed to get into uh, ABC, Forbes, and actually uh, about two months ago, I had a whole Business Insider article on me. So literally without any ad spend, I had a market reach of uh, 300 million people. So uh, people want to know about franchising. So that was part of this like, hey, you know what? People are interested in it. They're always looking for new investments. But it's really unobtainable for most people. They have, you know, six-figure cash requirements. Uh, you got to have time to manage a manager or go run it full time, and uh, you got to have the right skill set. So then I thought, you know, why can't you own franchises like you do shares of stocks in the market? And I've been watching the fractional investing community grow. You know, this has only been legal for the last five years or so. Right. And really, when it became legal through the Jobs Act. Real estate was the first thing people thought of oh, yeah. because it's the most commonly known alternative asset. A hundred percent. Yeah. So that area just absolutely forced. So now you've got things like Collectible, Otis, Masterworks for Art, VinoVest for Wine. And uh, my problem with all these new ones is that they don't actually give you any income. And you know, as an investor, you got to diversify in a lot of ways. And part of it is you need income producing uh, investments. So franchising gives you that income. It gives you equity appreciation. And you know, this is something that I think invest, I mean, they already have been very interested so far. So it's uh, exciting to get this, uh, you know, out to the rest of the country. That's awesome. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's it's much rarer to have a fractional platform that also does dividends. Absolutely. They, they are out there. There are some for sure. But yeah, it's it's much rarer. And, you know, I think you're, you're spot on with, with one of the problems there. So let's talk about getting set up. You know, what were some of the, the struggles that you faced and challenges you faced and just getting this business set up, right? Like the Jobs Act changed everything five years ago. We know that. But still, I mean, you know, after talking to folks at like Collectible and other companies, you know, I've come to realize just how much work we're talking about, like over a year of work to get up, get set up financially, legally. Did you face those kind of challenges as well, financial and legal challenges? And, you know, tell us a little bit about that. You know, I've had some great advisors since I started this. I got to give a shout out to Cody Barbo with Trust and Will. It's basically TurboTax for Trust and Wills. And uh, he's done amazing things. That company, they just finished their Series B at the end of last year for an extra $15 million. And so when I was getting ready to go with Franchares, I've been chatting with him for years about this idea. And so, okay, you need to go talk to my lawyers at DLA Piper, which is one of the largest law firms in the country. And so you know, they were able to help me out from the ground up and uh, you know, really work with me being you know, a founder. They wanted to uh, help me in that regard. And so I got set up you know, legally the best structure possible. And then financially, I started reaching out to my network and angel investors, VCs. And honestly, I got a lot of the same questions that you asked before. Why has no one done this? <laughs> Again, people typically think about the food industry when it comes to franchising. And those are really tight margins. So if you're looking at fractionalizing an investment and then you start evaluating all these like, you know, the war for penny franchises, you're like, oh, that's a really tough thing to you know, split amongst a bunch of people. But then you look at these service businesses that require no inventory and a lot of them don't even need a storefront. And so you have much higher margins by working on these service franchises with fewer employees and they're easier to manage. 
And so you really need someone who has a franchise insight like I do. And at the same time, you know, have to be young enough and have a good enough like background in finance to know that you could take it in this direction. I'm probably the world's expert in franchising under 40. I used to say under 30, but I finally passed that marker. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so uh, I think it was it's good timing in the market and I was just the right person to do it, which is, you know, especially getting funding. I think that was something that all my investors really saw was just, I was the guy to do it. I mean, the best investors, they say, don't give me the deck. Let's hop on a call or hop on a Zoom. They just want to get to know you. And they're like, who are you? Why should I trust you with my money? Your background's perfect for this, you know, especially the price is right, of course. You know, I think that you're also riding the the, uh, the coattails of two huge trends at the moment. You know, one is the fractionalized everything trend, right? Which we're seeing, we cover alternative assets like, you know, tremendously. And then the other is, you know, the unsexy businesses trend, so to speak. <laughs> They're getting sexier and people are looking for yield in, in different new places. This is just the fusion of those two ideas. Oh, yeah. And honestly, I think it's the beginning of a longer trend where, you know, franchising is not seen as sexy right now. I think it's going to have a massive comeback in the future because, you know, over the last 20 years, it's been all about startup culture and startup life and software businesses. But nowadays, it's for one, most software things have been done. Like there will always be new ideas, but it's not the Wild West anymore where you can just kind of throw anything up there. But also, you know, it's that uh, startup cultures become very toxic in a lot of companies. And this is coming out more and more in the news lately. And so a lot of people are saying, you know, I want to be entrepreneurial, but I just want to have a fun company and like talk to people and like make a good income. And so what I see in the future is in the tech world, like tech sales, especially once you're like 35, 40, you're kind of aged out of the industry. So I see in the future, you're going to have great flux of salespeople who are used to making good six-figure incomes, who are entrepreneurial, maybe don't have an idea of their own, is literally a perfect franchisee for so many concepts. And so I think there'll be a huge wave of people who say like, yeah, I don't want to deal with that horrible tech culture. I just want to own a great local company, make a good income. So I think we'll be seeing a big transition to uh, you know rising tide for franchising. I agree. I think it's awesome, man. So what I would love to do is understand a little bit about the mechanics of how it works. You know, with other fractional platforms, the most common way that companies do this is with each investable asset, they basically create an LLC for each asset and then sell shares of that asset. Is that similar to franchises approach? I mean, if not, can you kind of take us through how a franchise gets fractionalized? Yeah. So we're actually, especially to make it more affordable while also being diversified, we're putting a whole portfolio together that you'd be able to invest in. And so instead of like, hey, we're going to buy one single location, it's you know a portfolio of 50 to 100 locations. And so you can be diversified both across different geographies, across different industries, and uh, just a lot of verticals here. So you'll be able to invest in things like healthcare, auto and fitness. And especially in the long term, I want these portfolios to be more on the local level. So I'm based in Chicago. And I got to say, there's something special about walking around town and being like, oh, yeah, I own part of that place, own part of that place, get my oil changed at that place I own. And so it's investing in your community as I see something a huge advantage. So to bring it back to your question, it's um, one entire vehicle that'll be carrying a bunch of different franchises. To be clear, though, do investors, they, they have to spread the risk across different um, investment uh, vehicles or they, they can choose to or... How much control does the investor have over what they're investing in? Are they investing in themes? Are they investing in the entire you know, bucket 
as a whole? How does that work? So in the short term, it's more of a, you get like a mutual fund of franchises. And so you invest in the portfolio as a whole. Down the road, you know, especially as we scale up more, we're going to do thematic ones. We'll do even like specific lines. And especially, you know, because people create new businesses and they want to franchise it. This is something that we'd be able to help them bring to market very quickly. Like if it's a very good concept with a great founding team and they just need the operations and capital to go, I mean, we'd be able to create a hundred location brand overnight. Got it. Okay. Interesting. So let's talk about the fees required. So how does this work? How are you actually able to do this without charging fees at all? Yeah. So when I was putting together Franchares, I did my research and I looked at every single other fractional investing platform and specifically what people didn't like about them. Uh, number one by far was the fees. And so I looked into it and you know, a lot of companies don't always own the assets that they're listing on there. They're more just brokers for people. So I looked at it and I said, well, how can I get rid of the fees? How can I do something? You know, I want to be an asset of the people really. And so we make money in three different ways. The first is actually a reflection of my background in the brokerage industry because we actually get a brokerage fee from the franchise themselves not our investors uh, for the portfolio. So if you think of it like if you were a realtor and you bought a bunch of investment properties and you know it came from the investment as a commission, that's what we do. The second way is that we actually supply the working capital for the franchise. So about 80% of the cost is startup funds. Then that last 20% of the investment is working capital. So we buy into the fund with the working capital to partner with our investors. So as the franchises make money, we take 20% of the returns because we own 20% of it. Got it. And then finally, uh, private equity loves franchises. If you have 10 or more locations, they will come scoop them up for you as soon as you make their phone ring. And so uh, we'll have different types of funds. Like ideally every five to seven years, we'll be selling off the funds. You know, it gets a good cash windfall to all the investors as well as ourselves. But we'll also have ones that are more... Uh, you know, income focused that we don't plan on selling the funds down the road. So just like you have different goals and investment strategies in the stock market, you'll be able to do with franchises as well in the franchise market. That's really, really cool. And you see a lot of parallels with that right now with, with uh, fractional real estate investing. You know, there's all sorts of different approaches you can take, but there's some approaches that allow you to buy into funds that are, um, you know, very aggressive with, you know, development, but don't don't have a lot of cash reserves for maintenance and emergencies and stuff like that. And then there's others that play it very safe and are looking for long term income and dividends and not a lot of flipping opportunities. And so that's really cool that you're able to kind of invest in the, the theme and the style that you're you're comfortable with. And yeah, seeing that applied to, to franchises makes total sense. That's really, really cool. Thank you. I'm, I'm excited for everything. And uh, yeah, I just kind of thought the golden rule, if you charge fees, you lose. <laughs> and yeah, you know, look at Robinhood. You know, it's uh, the industry's already going that way. And I know that people are going to come. They'll be coming after me. I won't be the only one for franchise investing in the you know, forever, but it's going to be very hard without someone with my background, as well as you can't beat us by undercutting fees. And uh, you know, diversity funds a good example of that. They're uh, in the real estate investing space, and they do the same type of uh, approach. And yeah, you know, I found them when I was looking up how to craft my uh, strategy together, and I saw that I wasn't the first to do it. I'm like, great validation. Awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Now you mentioned on the site you talk about 401k eligibility. That's really interesting. Can you tell us a little bit about how that works? Yeah. So there's uh, one way that will work, and one way that we're working on. 
Uh, the first is that you're able to use a solo 401k. So something outside of your employer and something that you can get from like a uh, auto uh, IRA or a... Like a checkbook checkbook IRA, basically, like self-directed IRA. Just self-directed yep. IRA, yep. You already are able to invest in different fractional uh, opportunities through that. So we're taking that approach as well. The other is uh, I'm trying to do something that's legally never been done before. So uh, in franchising, actually, like when you uh, do normal franchise ownership, one of the most common ways to fund them is actually through retirement assets. You're able to do a tax-free and penalty-free rollover to fund your franchise. It's, again, done every day plenty of times. And so what we uh, are trying to see if we can combine that with the Regulation A+, which is the fractional ownership strategy, uh, it's never been done before because it's never been done for franchising. So we're, we're trying to work on it and we're hoping the SEC will be kind to us. You know, another one of the themes that you're riding um, the coattails of, I'm realizing now, is just this idea of kind of buying your next job, right? Or buying your your final job, so to speak, if you're getting towards retirement. That's something that we, you know, we see a lot at, at Flippa.com is people basically just buying their next income stream. Um, it sounds like this is, you know, really similar and, you know, along those same lines, super exciting. Can people use um, an SBA loan to purchase uh, shares of a franchise? They can, but not with the franchise route because SBA loan is meant for like, if it's going to be all of your business. Uh, like We could do an SBA loan as a portfolio, but as far as like if you're going to go out and buy your own franchise, yeah, usually it's you pair a 401k rollover with an SBA loan, that's probably 90% of franchise financing right there. Got it. Okay. Yeah. I thought that, that might be too good to be true. I was wondering if that was uh, the case. <laughs> that would be pretty cool though. You know, it's been an interesting year for for all businesses, but especially for franchises. How has the pandemic affected the the traditional franchisee corporate relationship and how has it affected franchise? You know, there are over a hundred different industries and over 4,000 brands of franchises. So I can't really do a sweeping statement on how it's affected everyone because, you know, for some things like if you have a home services franchise, amazing relationship, everyone's stuck at home. And so their business has been as good as it's ever been. A lot of the traditional food ones are doing great too, because delivery is hotter than ever and people don't always want to cook at home. They want other experiences coming in, but you know, it really comes down to what the franchisor was like before, you know, were they supportive before all of this? There's some that are like, for example, Subway is one of those ones that has a huge, huge brand name. But you know, when you look at corporate, there's a lot of demons and skeletons in that closet. You know, uh, most people think, cause it's the big name, you're always going to do great. And it's a very cheap franchise. But, you know, those things like this is what I coach people on for years is that, you know, they don't have territory restrictions. So if you've ever seen one where they open up like seemingly across the street from each other, well, that's because they do that because they'll let anyone open anywhere. Because if one fails, they still got twice as much exposure and one of them is going to be a very profitable one. And so people who had bad relationships before like that got even worse during the pandemic. Good franchisors who were good before the pandemic they were shifting before. Like good example is a great up and coming food one. I work with Teriyaki Madness. They'd already invested in technology. Their franchisor, uh, the founder, Michael Haith, he'd started Doc Popcorn, which got acquired by Dippin' Dots. He started uh, Maui Wowie Sandwiches, got acquired by Private Equity. Very experienced, great franchisor. So when he started this, he already had great support for his franchisees. He was investing in the right technology. And so they actually, I think they went up something like uh, 15% year over year for their same source sales. 
And so like, that's the great example. Like some are great relationships like that. Others, not so much because when the franchisor wasn't good before, that was a test that shows their true colors. And then as far as for franchise itself, honestly, my biggest kick in the ass moment was uh, actually in the middle of the pandemic when I read an article, maybe even saw in the news that people were betting on the stock market because there weren't sports. That was like the, oh my God, how did I not get this going already? Like I'd probably be a billionaire by now. <laughs> wishful, <laughs> wish, wishful thinking, but like a good alternative when the market's crazy like that. And like, you know, you got Reddit versus Wall Street. It would have been a perfect time for franchise to have already been there. And so I think it's actually shown just even more reason why an asset class like this is needed because people need to diversify off Wall Street. They need to diversify from real estate. It's just like it's always been is that you need to diversify. You know, any financial advisor will tell you you should have about 20% of your portfolio into alternative assets. It's to diversify, to decrease your risk, but also increase your upside. And so in the past, only accredited investors could invest in most of these things. But then with the Jobs Act a few years ago and the rise of fractional investing, this allowed retail level investors to gain access to all of these. Now that this is an accessible part of your portfolio, I think you're going to see more and more people reach that 20%. And because they need to diversify, like I don't see anyone in the fractional space as a competitor. We're all good friends because people should have a little bit of everything. Uh, it's definitely the way it should be. So I think it's nothing but great improve the market for franchises. That's such a good point. I look at our landscape with alternative assets club and you know I, I kind of take the same approach i see us all in this together right like you know we may be competing here we may be competing there but really we all have a vested interest in growing alts right mm-hmm. and growing the um especially the fractional opportunities for everyone so yeah we are all friends it's just one big happy family here i love it so one thing i wanted to ask about is you talked a lot about the different types of franchise businesses and how some are thriving during the pandemic, you know, services businesses, some of the the boring, unsexy stuff like HVAC, I'm assuming, and um, home services and stuff like that, not to mention food delivery. Mm-hmm. But your investors are investing in the, the entire pool at this stage, right? So how has that affected which franchises you look to partner with, right? Like, have you been focusing on specific themes? What, where are you focused right now in terms of which opportunities you want to bring to the investors. Do you have favorites? Do you have favorite kind of themes? Tell us a little bit about your sourcing. I mean, I definitely have favorites, but I can't give them all out because I'll give them out when I, when it's available for everyone. As far as like how my sourcing tends to go, like I've worked with over 500 different franchises over the years, so know a little bit about everything. And so I try and look for things that are not necessarily fad driven, things that are typically needed sources. You know, whether it's from anything around the home to, you know, people got to eat. <laughs> it's a little bit of everything that's required out there. So I want to look at things that have high margins because their service businesses have a real need in person's day-to-day lives and, um, you know, have a really good management team. So like the franchise has a very proven background. And a great thing about franchising that most people don't know is that uh, we're actually regulated by the Federal Trade Commission. So part of that regulation is that every franchise has to file a franchise disclosure document or FDD. And FDD, it it can be hundreds of pages long, but it describes everything about the franchise from who the leadership team is, how they got started, operations and training. Also included is the full investment cost. So not just like, here's a ballpark figure. 
it's here's a line by line cost and a range because it costs different amounts to open something in New York City versus North Dakota. And even a lot of them are allowed to have earnings claims. And so I want to look at ones that have a good earnings claim. That's the one optional part, but I try and make it necessary in what I do. Uh, Because you got to have a good idea of what you're walking into. And so I try and find people who check all these boxes. And, you know, at the end of the day, it's also a bit of a sniff test. Like, does this make sense? You know, because everyone's got a new business idea. It's like, which one just makes sense? And so that's why I love when I talk to clients about things. They're like, huh, that makes sense. (laughs) That's kind of how I wanted franchise to be. It's just like, it's just got to be fundamental. You know, it's got to make sense. Well, that makes sense. I I like it a lot. Exactly. (laughs) So it's great that you don't have fees with franchise. Um, Investors don't have fees. That's awesome. And that's definitely where the market's going. Robinhood has paved the way and basically everyone's kind of copied since then. And it's great for everyone. But you you do have a $500 minimum investable um, purchase amount. Can you tell us a little bit about that minimum and why why that exists? So I wanted to make it first off, more accessible to just about everyone. I mean, we already have family offices and institutional money really interested in investing along with our retail investors. But it was funny as I was talking to angel investors getting the start, they said, well, why go for retail? You know, why not just go with the uh, higher up money? And I said, if you decide to pass on the general market, someone will go after them and then they'll be known as the fundraise for that industry. So I wanted to make it accessible to everyone uh, for that one. It's really should be you invest with the big dollars, not just as a comparison to. And then also when things are done on a local level, especially, I want people to be able to invest in their community. You know, I want things that, you know, the guy who might be working in the supercuts is also invested in the supercuts that he works in. And so it's something that is owned by the community and produces money in the community. And it's just really like keeping dollars back home. And then yeah. um, as far as like why 500, like couldn't I go lower? It's because these are long-term investments. And, you know, I don't want anyone thinking like, oh, I'll throw them 50 bucks. And you know, if I need to come get it next week, I'll give them a call. We will be offering liquidity through trading, but we do want to make sure that we're able to make sure it's a significant enough amount that people know, hey, this is a long-term investment. We're packing it away for a rainy day. Got it. Okay, cool. Yeah, I love the community aspect. That's a really cool piece here. And once you have the ability to invest in specific, you know, themes um, in the future, you can really extend that and in a really, uh, really cool way. So I think that's really awesome. What you said about the long term nature of this type of investment, you do have plans in the future to open up, you know, trading windows or you know, secondary markets or even something like what, you know, LexShares does, which is basically always on trading, right? Mm-hmm. Is that fair to say? Is that something you, you're striving towards? Yeah. So uh, I told you the number one complaint I heard from investors was high fees. The number two was illiquidity. So I wanted to look into how do I solve this? And so you know, talking with a lot of different people, you, you got to really navigate your way through the industry to see who's up and coming, who's producing what. I came across a company called uh, PPEX, and PPEX is an alternative asset trading platform. And coming out very soon, they're going to be doing um, regulation A plus trading. So shares, just like any of these other types of fractional companies, will be able to be traded on it. And so that way, it allows uh, investors to get liquidity, not by us, but by trading to other investors. Because that's typically the problem is that people can't do equity because if everyone wanted to sell, that's well, then we have to go raise more money to be able to pay people out. 
versus if it's a trading uh, out on that platform instead, it gives people the option to go get liquidity. Because people are looking for that, I want to give them what they want. And you know, companies like Fundrise, they're going to have to try and walk back five to 10 years of people saying, oh, I love it, but no liquidity. Right. Versus when we come right out saying that we have no fees and you can trade it, I think it's going to, again, really set us far apart from uh, a lot of these other fractional investments. If you have perfect liquidity um, in a perfect market, you're essentially the equivalent of like a REIT, right? I mean, you're 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 essentially like a, what is it? I guess it would be a, a FIT, a franchise investment trust, right? <laughs> we we've tried that before. <laughs> the SEO for FIT is not that good, so <laughs> we weird. I'm not saying this is a wise idea, but um, <laughs> see, that's the thinking, right? Yeah, that sounds really cool. I mean, you're basically your, your management team that's managing a pool of franchise um, assets that people can buy and sell and trade as if it were an ETF or a REIT or a publicly traded um, stock. Yeah. That's really, really, that's a compelling vision. The original idea was a franchise REIT and uh, then it just really built on from there. And I just, I typically refrain from using the term REIT because you're obviously a very savvy investor. A lot of people don't know what a REIT is if they're not that into finance. And so uh, I, I've just learned to get it out of my vocabulary for now. <laughs> Yeah, it's definitely one of those terms that people probably understand the concept more than the acronym. Oh, yeah. Well, this is great. A couple of final questions for you. Uh, what are your plans for, for 2021? I mean, you had a huge year last year, and this year is off to a great start. What are you thinking for the remainder of this year? Well, we're uh, we're launching our initial fund. We've got over 1,000 people on our wait list right now. So we're really excited to bring this new asset class to the market. Uh, I know everyone's really excited for it. Believe me, me more than anyone. You know, shortly after. We work on fun two, fun three, and just keep going from there. So it's the start of a new dynasty, in my opinion. I'm just super excited to get running with it. It's been a long time in the making. You know, it's a lot of prep work coming to fruition. You know, it's like people say, uh, overnight success started 10 years ago. <laughs> I, I hear you, man. I think it's coming together beautifully. The big question for everyone's mind is, you know, how open are you right now? How can people invest? You know, you say you're, you're excited more than anyone else. But I'm telling you, I'm up there, man. I'm on the wait list. <laughs> And I'm excited, but how can uh, how can people invest with Franchise? Go to the site, join the waitlist. Yep, that's that's the only way right now. We're uh, still going through registration with the SEC, so when we're able to, you'll be the first to know if you're on that waitlist. And we do have to limit the funds because when you do fund like this, you can't just like endlessly take money. You have to have a plan for it. And so, yeah, you know, we have our plan out there, and so we want to make sure that we fill that. So the waitlist is going to be important down the road, you know, especially as uh, you know, it scales up a lot more. There will be people that have to wait you know, down the road for another fund to come out. So that's why we're encouraging people to hop on now. A lot of people say like, oh, yeah, don't worry, we'll invest. I'm like, no, you do have to get on the waitlist, I promise you. <laughs> it, it, the eligibility is this, you don't have to be an accredited investor. Do you have to be a U.S. citizen or are there international opportunities? Uh, yes, you can invest internationally as well. You know, another thing that we're trying to work on this Again, we're trying to create a lot of new things that have not been done before, but there's actually a lot of uh, visas that you can get from being an international franchise investor. Um, so we're trying to see if there's a way that we can combine the franchise model with those visas to uh, create citizenship opportunities. So wow. we'll let you know on that one. Yeah, because that, that would be just another game changer. So we're just we're trying to see what boundaries we can push. Because the idea with those visas is that if you're investing to create jobs in the U.S., you should be able to stay here. And so I want right. to you know, be able to help facilitate that. Well, especially because franchises are so intertwined with the immigrant experience. I mean, so many 
immigrants come to the United States and start businesses. And many of those are franchises. So that's a running theme that goes back decades, um, I would imagine. Um, So it seems like the perfect kind of future next step doing something like that would be tremendous. It's interesting because back then, especially franchises were a lot more affordable. You know, it's a lot of rents, costs of things have gone up, things that were more affordable back in the day. And so now what we're trying to do is we're actually trying to make this uh, way for people to start creating generational wealth. You know, if you think about someone who traditionally works in like a hair care business or fast food place, you know, it's just a clock in, clock out job and they don't really see a long-term opportunity there. So we want to apply the Chick-fil-A model to it. Uh, when I say that, do you know how much a Chick-fil-A franchise costs? I used to. I um, Take a stab. I want to say... A million dollars. You know, that's a very good guess. If you were to do everything outright, it would be about a million dollars, maybe 1.3. But it actually only costs $10,000 to be a Chick-fil-A franchisee. That's right. Chick-fil-A is the, the, the one that they, they it's usually a million dollars for a lot of uh, fast food. But Chick-fil-A said, no, 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 we're going we're gonna to bring that way down. Is that right? Yep, yep. If you read that article in The Hustle, uh, I was actually their source on that. And uh, we got on the phone. He's like, this is too funny. I have your answer on Quora up for this. You're like the guy I want to talk to. <laughs> I'm like, I love when that happens. But, um, but the, the reason behind it is that you know, Chick-fil-A realized that people who work their way up and you know, have gone through everything, they are really the best people to operate it. Not someone who came from a Fortune 500 background who's got cash and just says, okay, I'll do this as the next step. So what they said right. is, let's get these best. They've people. got the drive. They've got the hunger. They're they're the ones you want running the show. Yeah, exactly. And you and they're in the news all the time for such happy uh, franchisees. Customers love them. Like it's just a great company. So I thought of it as, well, if we're pulling together funds and we need uh, great people running it on every level, why not bring the Chick Fil A model to every franchise? And so especially with uh, you know I. Uh, with so much going on is that I wanted to think about how I could do my part and uh, especially with like social equality. And, you know, I thought, Hey, you know, a lot of times there's minorities who have no trajectory from like starting at this job uh, in a fast food place. So if you can show them a route of like, Hey, work your way up and you can run a location, run multiple locations, run a fund, you got franchise corporate after that. And so it's really creating uh, just a, great way for people to build their way up for you know future generations after them while diversifying and spreading the risk right yeah yep. um which which is a huge part of it i love that the chick-fil-a um uh as a company i think they're they're really a fantastic company um they have high values and what always amazed me about chick-fil-a was with, with so much pressure to deliver bottom line uh, results, you know, year after year, the idea that a company of their size would willingly just close one day a week, you know, every Sunday they're closed for the sake of principle and the uh, sake of rest it, I know. is really compelling and really awesome. There's not a lot of companies that service fast food companies that do that. It is awesome. But after a long Saturday night, I can't tell you how many times I've wanted that Chick-fil-A to be open on Sunday. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, as a consumer, I absolutely hate it. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. Cool. Well, this is awesome, Kenny. Man, I, I just want to say thank you for for this podcast. You are on to something so special and the sky's the limit with franchise. I cannot tell you how excited I am to 
watch how your company unfolds and most of all get to the top of that wait list so so i can invest myself whatever you can do to help me out after this podcast that'd be great wink wink but kenny thank you thank you once again uh this has been tremendous we wish you the best of luck and uh we hope to check in with you uh in the future and see how things have unfolded thank you so much it was great chatting with you i'm looking forward to the next time all right take care bud thanks for tuning in we sure hope you enjoyed this episode and if you did Please be sure to subscribe and give us a nice review for this podcast. It means a lot. And remember, you can find a transcription of this episode, along with all past issues of our weekly newsletter at our website, alternativeassets.club. See you next time.